Hey, Alex. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Hey, Alex. Yes. Let's start a podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Dickensian Epilogues, the podcast where we try to empower you to rewrite your own personal narrative. This is Alex and Jason. Jason, I have a question for you. How are you doing? What's going on? I'm doing. I'm. I was gonna say fantastic. Uh, I yes. am exhausted today. Oh, tell me about so, that. Like, I'm feeling like I'm in a good mood, but mm-hmm. uh, definitely having a youngster mm. does some stuff to your sleep patterns that I'm not really uh, accustomed to. So the bouncing baby boy. I am dealing with an issue called sleep regression, which, if you have ever heard of it, is I'm when... not. Okay, so I mean, I'm not an expert, but from the, the limited reading that I've done and the much more intense reading that my wife has done. Yes. Sleep regression is when kids have to learn their way through sleep cycles. Oh, is you talking about so, circadian rhythm, like getting up, going to bed kind of thing? Yeah, like you Naps? know how you sleep for two hours in deep sleep and then you come out of it? And right. Yes, I do know that. Right. So you and I deal with that by just staying asleep. But your brain activity that comes back a little bit. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, when you have an infant, they wake up every two to three hours and then you feed them and they go back to bed and you right. have to do that. Mm-hmm. And somehow that was easier for us than right now where he will go to bed at like 7.30. Okay. Which is awesome. Yeah. And he sleeps through to midnight. So we're already doing better than, than a lot of you got some. You got some husband wife time, some chill out time at least. Yeah. I assume. Yeah, in the evening. Then at midnight, he wakes up and his brain like freaks out. He's like, oh my God, I'm awake now. <laughs> I'm alive. He loses his mind and just starts screaming. Whoa. Oof. And then you like, because you're, when you get used to an infant, the thing you want to do is like cuddle him, take him into the bed, feed him again, da, da, yeah, da. Yeah. But now he's in a moment where you have to teach him how to self-soothe so that he can learn how to stay asleep through those mm, moments. Yeah. So literally it's getting out of bed every like five minutes to put a soother back in his mouth because he spat it out. (laughs) I don't want this anymore. And literally like hold his hand and let him fall back asleep. Oh, Oh, I hold his little hand? Oh my God. Yeah, like look, if I wasn't dying from lack of sleep, it would be so Yeah, it'd be be cute if it wasn't so like, oh, I want to sleep. I totally get that. No, and, and it is cute. He's like 16 pounds, so he's he's big for a baby, but big he's like boy. Really, really small. Yeah. So when I say hold his hand, I mean like I hold my hand above his chest, and then he grabs uh, my pinky finger and his thumb. <laughs> like a dry steering wheel. <laughs> and he's just like holding. So he's holding my hand more than I'm holding his. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, mm. this is a very long way of saying, yes. wow, am I tired? And Coffee is not doing its job anymore. Oh, no. You don't want to get the tired but wired thing. I read this thing a few weeks ago. It's called the cortisol switch. And I realized that I basically have gotten this every day for years when I was drinking like multiple (laughs) pots a day where it's like I will feel great. Bang on. Doesn't matter how much sleep I got. But it, it will, like, as time goes on uh, that day. But it's like, oh, I feel great. I feel amazing. I want to take on the world. And then all that dopamine and serotonin gets, I think, aromatized in my blood into cortisol. So immediately I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, like, take on the day and get these uh, tasks done. And, oh, my God, what happens if I don't get these tasks done? And, oh, uh, and just, like, at about, like, 1 p.m., if I keep drinking coffee, I will just get so wired and tweaked out. 
And yeah, There's it's a bad this scene. Feeling that hits my chest sometimes if I've had too much coffee. Oh, it's like that dryness. Like, ugh. yeah, it. Everything is tight, and then I'll notice it because my breath is really shallow. And then all of a sudden, I'm just thinking about like ten years from now, <laughs> and it's not good. It's. <laughs> Here's it's ten years like from now. I'm... Some bad things are gonna happen. <sighs> yeah. Wow. Did I really screw up the intervening ten years? <laughs> oh my God. You ever see those like brain memes where it's like there's this girl and he's falling asleep and the brain's like, "Are you awake?" And the girl's like, "Yeah, like shut up." And then the brain has like an empty, uh, you know, speech bubble for like whatever you want to put in it. And then the fourth panel is the woman going like, "Ugh," and like. I've seen one where it's like, hmm, trying to sleep, eh? Okay, now we're going to reorganize all our uh, terrible moments by order of embarrassment, starting from, like, grade oh one. God. And it's like, oh! But yeah, caffeine does yeah, a bit of that. So, I mean, the upside of being parent-level tired, mm. I don't get the the sitting in bed staring at the ceiling very often anymore. I okay. used to have a little bit of insomnia. I'm just tired enough that I fall asleep now. Just conk so out. That's kind of cool. And on the flip side, I will say the silver lining to this whole thing is if you're going to be forcibly unemployed for a time, yes, uh, it is a lot easier to deal with a sleep progression when I'm home. Yes. When we finish this call, I can go back to bed. That's <laughs> if this was a oh. work day, I'd have to stay focused for eight hours. Bro. I Crazy. am I am legitimately terrified about the notion of being a new parent. Like talking to you is actually helping me because I can see like you're one of my the first friends in like close friend circle who's had kids and I've always been like oh my god like I would I will have like intrusive thoughts of like I wouldn't be able to handle like I'm thinking to myself or like I, I think I wouldn't be able to handle it because I'll have so little sleep and I'll be getting up at all hours of the night so it's 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 nice to see your sense of humor. Um, but yeah, I can, I can totally, I could see just how difficult it would be to be like, yeah, 3am and you look at the watch and it's like, huh, like three hours and 45 minutes. I got to be up and like ready for a work day. And it's like, ay, ay, ay. yeah, I mean, there, there's, you, you, you will have to let go of some of the stuff that you did when you were single and, and yeah. childless. Like yeah. it takes longer to go places now. It, it is what it is. Like, yeah. uh, if the kid poops right when you're trying to leave. You're going to have to change a diaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these little things add up too. Like the diaper bag has to be stocked when you leave the house. And if it isn't, you have to go back to stock it. Now, just... So like you're talking about like the diapers, you're buying more diapers or are you putting diapers from the boxes into like a special bag that's like on hand that you can whip out really quickly? Yeah. So if you leave the house, you have to carry diapers and bottles and... Right, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so... <laughs> When you like load up the car to go somewhere mm. and you get halfway down the street and you're like, oh crap, did we pack five diapers or 10? Oh my and God. And then you got to check the bag and it's like 10, circle back. We're going to get, <laughs> or sorry, five and then circle back yep. and get 10. And yeah, little things like that. And then the other one is the idea that I can put an eight hour period as my sleeping time yeah. is just gone. That's, just throw that out that's the window. not going to be a part of my life for a while. Yep. And uh, I think that just accepting these things is probably a big part of being less anxious as a parent. Yeah. Smart, smart. 
Well, I think I think one of these episodes, I, sh- I shouldn't, this should be off air talk, but one of these episodes, Ooh. send me like all the anxieties that you have in advance and we'll talk about them. Ooh, I like that. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I just want a chance to think it through because it's, it's, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to it. That, uh, yeah, I bet. Well, you but, know, j- just oh, parent child things. Thing ah. Kind of irrelevant to the rest of today, but, mm. uh, you know, new fathers, in particular, but new mothers also. Yes. Uh, there's there's a lot of pressure to do everything yourself. Asking for help goes a very very long way. Yeah. And a lot of people in your life, especially, I mean, if you have good family and good friends, and I, I know that's a privilege that not all of us have, but yeah. uh, you know, mediocre friends will come out of the woodwork to help you out because yeah. everybody loves a baby, yeah. and the help. I mean, different people will will help in different ways. Not everyone's going to change diapers for you. Yeah. But if someone offers to do your groceries, just freaking take them up on it. And oh yeah, who would not? Like, if you're, you'd be, dude. Like, it socially. Yeah. We are not taught to ask for help, and we are not taught to accept help. I mean, so as very yeah, I would agree actually. Yeah. As men in specific, men not women. to generalize it, but yeah, no, everybody. Yeah, I would get that individualism. Well, no, in the case of parenting, like mothers are supposed to be superheroes. Like that's, that's the expectation. Yeah. And yeah, they're going through, I mean, for me, it's a shock Yeah. for, for Brandy. It was like a bodily trauma yep. followed up by a shock and you don't get a chance to recover from compounded with no sleep. Yeah. And yeah, all these new obligations. And if Scary. you're breastfeeding, like that's taxing on your body. So, yeah. you know, half of her food and water is just dedicated to another person, but yeah. she still has to eat it. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. Ask, asking well. for help is huge. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. Man. Shout out to Sean. Shout out to Rob. Sean uh, and Rob. Shout out to all of the parents in my life. Like, big helps. Shout out to the Steph Brennan for creating our, for creating our logo. That's right. <laughs> she helped out too. Well, Jason, our topic for today, and this was the topic you're going to tell me before I foisted a topic on you last episode is the idea of creative block. We could talk about it in the term of writer's block, but I think you would agree that any kind of creative pursuit is going to have some kind of thing in the way. Every creative pursuit. Everyone. You were talking about you were talking about parenting a second ago and having little little um Barrett hold your hand and all that stuff. That's a creative pursuit. That has that has a, an element of that in it raising a child. However, I wanted to sort of level the playing field with you and with our listeners about what the terms we're talking about are and what they mean. So you and I, we both read um, uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, not to be confused with The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And in that book, he talks a lot about being creative and and creative pursuits. He's a writer. But I I wanted to really just cut to the chase here and say... Uh, about the idea of what a creative pursuit is. You probably have some ideas about what we could, how we could define that term, but I just wanted to throw out some elements and see how they sort of like bounce off you and if you wanted to riff off of that, what that reminds uh, you of in a personal sense. So here's what I came up with. A creative pursuit has to be something that is new for you. It has to be something that is completely new. 
uh, you're experimenting with, you said Jason, photography, uh, a musical instrument, raising a child, creating a garden. It's got to be something completely new for you, not just something that uh, you're doing again. Like I'm going to read the same book again. Binging a show that you've seen already uh, is not, I would say, is not a creative pursuit. It has to be something that is personal something that is personally motivated. So not something that, uh, you know, a parent or society is telling you to do. Someone who had no interest in becoming a lawyer, but everybody around him said, you're going to become a lawyer and he's doing it. I would posit that that is not an inherently creative pursuit that is done out of obligation and, and not creative in my opinion. And the third thing out of four is it's got to be something that scares you. You ha for, for me personally, a creative pursuit is defined by what happens to you when you don't do it. So that's the, that's the fourth thing that ties in is if, if it scares me on a personal level, fear is my weather vane when it comes to creative pursuits. So out of those three things, something that's completely new, something that's personal and something that scares you, how does that sort of bounce off you, Jason? Is there anything that, uh, that I, you think I've left unsaid about our definition of what a creative pursuit is? I have a small amount of beef with all three points. Oh, give me uh, that beef. Okay, I, let's start with novelty. Okay. I've always had a bit of an issue with the idea of complete novelty okay. when it comes to creation. Mm -hmm. And creativity, you, you still express creativity in something that you've done before. I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Reframing, I like that. Okay, let's yeah, talk uh, dilate on that. Now, I do think that creativity in it, in in like a pure sense is about a certain amount of novelty. Mm -hmm. um, however, I, I, the complete part is where I'm getting hung up. Ah. And I think, you know, you mentioned gardening and I'll use that as an example okay. that if I plant a garden this year and I plant the same plants next year, like let's say tomatoes, right? Mm -hmm. I grow six tomato plants and then next year I grow six tomato plants. The mm. idea that it stopped being creative because it wasn't novel seems a little bit silly to me that I, I think mm. the act of refining and growing involves repetition to some extent. Yeah, and yeah, very yeah. few creative pursuits will remain meaningful if you make them completely novel every time. That's a very shallow view of creativity. I wonder if perhaps to clarify, because I do agree with that point completely, Jason, perhaps a good distinction would be the, the difference between uh, mundanity and creativity. Because when I spoke about something new versus like old or humdrum, like you said, planting the same garden every year, I suppose to an individual could be mundane, but maybe it's, it could be maybe just about mindfulness or being aware of, or no, no, I like the idea of growth with, with creativity, something that is you're trying to hone and you're trying to perfect, but I, but please continue. Uh yeah, I, your distinction is fair. Like, I, I think that makes sense. I, in the case of the tomato garden, I'm thinking of like, if I go through the same exercise, I just put tomatoes in the ground every year. Uh huh. By all means, I, it is yeah. not a creative. It's same thing it over and over again. Over time. Yeah. But in my experience with tomatoes in particular, the first year I planted them, the second year I learned how to prune them, and it was based on failures of the year before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I learned how to like dial in my watering schedule and yeah there's, yeah there's little things that change over time and and i felt like the more i repeated growing tomatoes which was like a passion project for me yeah uh, i i actually expressed more creativity in my garden each year even though it was the same plant 
Well said. So well that said. That was number one. Okay. Number so two. So the second part was about being personal. Personal to and you. I, yes. I agree that like the creative ideal is personal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your example was someone who is forced to do something for a living. Yes. You still can express creativity in that. And the idea that you would just like become a lawyer without creating a bunch of stuff on the way seems mm. like yeah, a, kind of a ludicrous broad, thing. Broad strokes. Yeah. 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 So I think that creativity is ideally personal uh -huh. and it's personal maybe in the sense that uh, it is an act done by a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, no you know, one else can do your push-ups for you in that sense. Yeah, you can't mm -hmm. express my creativity. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good distinction. Um, but I don't think it's personal in the sense that, like, I have to want it or I have to, you know, be that's, passionate. That's kind of freeing, actually, that you would bring that up, Jason, because it, it kind of, to me, alludes to the idea that it doesn't necessarily matter in what life condition I find myself in, like like to, to elaborate on that lawyer metaphor, like let's say I am a lawyer and I'm being forced to do such and such based on familial obligation. What you said actually kind of broadens my horizons because I can have elements in that in which I can be creative, even though on a, on a, a interpersonal level or a family level, I'm being sort of pushed into that. I always felt like one of my grandmothers, like my, my Nona was really like almost creative about how she cleaned the kitchen. Like I it was that. this particular process that, that she built over time. Yeah. And like my Nona did not let us load the dishwasher for her because we all did it wrong. So <laughs> you do it, she would like take the dishes out and redo it. Oh my God. And yeah, so like it's kind of a weird example and it's not one that I aspire to necessarily, but yeah, that was, uh, yeah, she, she was like something that you would think of as a, a really... You know, no one gets excited to do the dishes, but that was an expression of, of who she was. Interesting. Was interesting. What okay, was your third th point? Third beef was it was something that scares you and something that has a, an effect on you if you don't pursue it. Yeah. So, okay. Again, I think the reality of stakes is such that I will create in low stakes conditions and high stakes conditions. Hmm. And the idea of being scared to me is not inherent to creativity so much as it is an indication of like the the degree of the degree of importance that i put in the outcome yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. i think that's a really good jumping off point and i'm gonna um uh i'm gonna sort of like put that put like i'm gonna allow the listener to sort of put that together as a general landscape of what a creative pursuit could be without sort yeah. of saying like a thesis statement of what it is. Cause I feel like I, I feel like you and I get the taste of that and I can feel like a li the, our listeners can sort of put that together. But you talked about feeling, not necessarily feeling scared, but feeling something before a creative pursuit. And it's a perfect jumping off point with the framing that I wanted to structure these questions around, which was the war of art by Stephen Pressfield. Now, sure. I forget if you and I said this on Dickensian Epilogues. I know we've talked about it on live in some of our other projects, but just for sake of, of you know, explaining the landscape here, Stephen Pressfield's an author. He's a writer. He wrote this basically treaty on creativity, and uh, he uses some very specific terms in regards to creative pursuits. So just for sake of, uh, you know, inculcating that to our listeners, when we're talking about the term resistance... 
I'm using a very specific term that is from this book from Stephen Pressfield. And what I mean is resistance is whatever is blocking you internally from a creative pursuit. And you talked about how fear is not always there. And I agree with that. That's a good clarification because it can be other things. So we have these desires to pursue creatively and we have this thing in our way. And the question I, I wanted, I wanted to start on the flip side to ask you a question, Jason. And my question is, how have you, or excuse me, when and under what conditions have you seen resistance win? Where have there been situations perhaps in your life or the lives of other people around you? We don't have to use names where you have found resistance winning. The stakes don't have to be high. It doesn't have to be like a life-destroying Charlie Parker scenario. Yeah. Um, and I can go first if you want to put, if you want to congeal it, but you, okay, go right ahead, my dude. Like, okay. And I'm actually going to stay away from the obvious one is fear. So that, we've yeah. all seen somebody who's too afraid yep. to do their thing. Like, yep. you know, I'd love to be a singer. I just, I can't be on stage. Yeah. Ask the girl yeah. out, whatever. Yep. Cliche almost. Yeah. For real. But it's fair. Yeah. You have those stories. The one that I'm seeing, uh, I've seen a lot in my life that is maybe a little more tragic is uh, resistance wins when we al we allow our time horizon to be infinite. That Ooh, when we yes. act as if there will always be a tomorrow. And yes. I'm all for the abundance mindset in so many ways. Totally. And I. I definitely think that there is value to being patient and plodding along and yeah. being incremental. Those yeah. things are all valuable. However, I do think that there's a huge hangup that people have where they're like, I'll write my book tomorrow. I'll oh, yeah. do that podcast later. Uh, I just wish, or I, I can't do it right now. I would paint more, but I don't have time to do that right now. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it's even simple or, or less artistic things like, I want to go back to school, but it's just not the right time yet. Yeah. So and, the vague, those if onlys, right? Well, and, and sometimes it's specific. Like, yeah, in five years, I'm going to do it. But the mm -hmm. idea that, you know, time will be there in five years is too hypothetical for most of these, these things. And then yeah. you have people in five years who go, oh, so did you ever follow up on business school? Oh, no, uh, it's going to be three years now. You know, it, it just yeah. keeps going. There's a danger to believing that your time frame is unlimited. I think it's important to dilate on what you talked about, uh, what you just said earlier, that inter that, that uh, sort of hypothetical interaction of like, oh, hey, so how's such and such going? And for, for me personally, I, I've had situations in my life where I've had different pursuits and then other people have said, oh, so, hey, so how is such and such going? And I'll feel that pain, that like, that nasty, like, ugh, feeling like, and I, I kind of want to like, rationalize that away or like I don't want to feel that so I kind of through my explanations like oh well you know it's not really my thing I don't want to really do that anymore about 10 years ago I started writing a book and I still haven't finished that book and it was going to start as like a health book and then and it's now it's more of like a personal like memoir narrative um but Every time I have friends that I don't really connect with so often coming up to me and saying, oh, like, how is that book going? I want to read that book. The way resistance has won in my life personally 
is that instead of getting to a level and I'm just I'll just say this as as a sexy statement but personal disgust I'm not disgusted enough with the notion that I haven't been like working away at that book so um, and the way that's happened is I've, I've rationalized out of it. I've tried to like numb that pain. I've tried to bury that under other sort of personal victories. Like it's like, well, I'm doing this and I'm language learning. I'm doing a you know, musical instrument and I've got a new apartment. So that's the way that sort of uh, personal resistance has, has sort of won over in my life. But that's only one sort of manima- manifestation in my personal life. Just like a, a little point to, to add on to that. Mm-hmm. If, if you're relying on personal disgust to become the driver of your creative act, I think that you're doomed to fail, Alex, because <laughs> the reality <laughs> is huh. that that is not a motivating emotion very in, important. for anything but maybe like sloth or violence. <laughs> That you know what I'm kind of getting I'm kind of getting exposed uh, right now, and I appreciate that because I think what was like two or three episodes ago I, that whole metaphor about like what's your fuel and what kind of machine are you using to propel forward? Yeah, that's hmm, something well, to think about. And yeah, and if you're sitting on a book at home, and you know you're sitting on a book, Alex. Yeah. So if you're sitting on a book and it's not a priority, then then that's fine. Yeah. We you know you actually I saw your manuscript like it's there. Yeah. You yeah, did yeah, a lot yeah, of the yeah. creation already. Um, I, I think a couple of things in your specific example that might be worth thinking about. If the language learning and saxophone and your job and your girlfriend mm. are indeed more important than the book, that's fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 You can only have so many priorities in your life. Yeah. And if the reality is that the book is not one of them, I think one very honest thing to do, and a lot of people struggle with this, you know, myself included, yeah. is to say, when someone says like, oh, how's the book going? Yeah, I'm not working on a book anymore. I, I wrote it. It was, uh, it was a fun thing to do. I yeah. actually don't want to go any further with that. Yeah. These things are okay. Yeah, it, that's the kind of the scary thing, Jason. And as you're saying that, like I'm sort of investigating my own feelings. Like how would I feel if I, if I like totally gave that up and like, absolutely not like it self investigating myself. I can imagine like, I couldn't like, I need to make that book. So putting that together, sort of squaring that with the idea of, I forget if it's Parkinson's law work will expand to fill the time allotted. Yeah, um, having, having that like, because all I got it once I do it, it'll be done, right? It's not like a, a language learning pursuit where it'll be, you know, an endless kind of like journey or like health, for instance. That's like a lifestyle. And well, yeah. okay, here's the second thing. Okay, since since we're on that, because you yeah. just reminded me, um, mm. to to be practical, and I guess we're gonna stick on your example. Sure. A lot of people put a lot of pressure on the first draft of their first project, and. This is a mm. huge mistake. Yes. You've never written a book before. Yeah, no. Nope. And you should not assume that your first book will even be that good. Yeah, no. Now, I doubt it. <laughs> of course. In terms of getting published, it does matter. And that's why a lot of authors actually don't start with a book. They write little novellas and Blog short posts. stories and, and all of this kind of stuff to yes. get the practice out of the way. Uh, in the case of like a nonfiction, a lot of people have written journal articles over the years and mm-hmm. then write a book. Yeah, interesting. That's how you get your practice out of the way. But, whoops, smacked the mic. Uh, it's all good. When when I'm in Toastmasters is where I see a lot of my uh, creation by other people. Yeah. And 
Toastmasters is a club where we deliver speeches to each other and work on public speaking. And a huge hangup that new speakers have is that they watch some of us who have been around for a while. And not that I'm an amazing public speaker necessarily, but what I am is pretty calm looking. Yeah. Uh, I project my voice well. Yep. I'm articulate. Yep. And I smile my way through a presentation. And, and new people will come into the room and be like, oh, I have to be like that. I have to smile. I have to be calm. People shouldn't know I'm nervous. Yeah. And the mistake is that I was not that way on my speech number one. The difference is I'm not on speech number one. I have spoken hundreds of times. Yes, yes. That's how you get good. So when it comes to completing the project, whether it's your first book or your first song or whatever, yeah, yeah, you have to just get it done. And you have to understand that even experienced authors write more than one draft of a story. So the first draft isn't going to be good. Mm-hmm. Now, I've spent a long time saying that. <laughs> we don't have to continue it. But I do think that in your case as well, Finishing the manuscript is a valuable exercise of creation, whether or not it's a final product that is your masterpiece of your life. Yeah. Uh, and and that this is, it's funny when you mention the idea of publishing, because obviously that's what authors do. But for me, it's always just been about once I have them, like the, telling the story will be enough for me. Like, that's my goal point. My, the goal is not actually to publish or even sell the book, but just to have it done is is enough. And I that perhaps sounds like a, a bit of a cop-out. I'm, I'm reminded of, like, Stephen Pressfield's story where he had an author friend who had, like, the manuscript for, like, 10 years, and, like, it was in the mailbox, but he never published it. But, um, yeah, it's 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 I, I appreciate you mentioning about the idea of, like, ready, fire, aim. What's up? They're different things. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, when it comes to publishing the work, Mm. That may or may not be important to you now. Mm. It may or may not be important to you when you're done. And those may or may not be different things. Yes. My point is that by finishing the manuscript, you have the freedom to decide like, yeah, I want to keep going on this project or I want to write something else or that was fun. Writing is not going to be my primary thing going forward. I like that. All of those are true. But, you know, Finishing the project is step one, regardless of what step two ends up being. I like that. I like that. I think that's also a very good like inflection point there because one of the things like we were just talking about getting stopped by the whole, like the the weight of the entire process sort of like weighing me down, like, oh, it's going to be like this and I'm, I have something to say and it's going to be so creative. But like all of that projected forward narrative in my mind is like preventing me from like writing the next page. And yeah. that leads into another question I'd like to ask you about resistance to creative pursuits, which is how have you seen resistance manifest for you personally? So we're talking about other other people and concepts, but are there any elements in your life that you have seen resistance manifest for any creative pursuit? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, right now in particular, but generally this is a through line for my whole life, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I have been struggling with distraction that Mm. I'll sit down at my computer to do some work and Mm -hmm. my phone will buzz and I'm like, Oh, okay. Better check that. And then next thing you know, I've been on Instagram for half an hour. I don't even remember opening the program. Yeah. Oh my God. I I know that feeling. (laughs) Oh, it's horrible. 
the other thing that I will do is sit down to do something and then have a task that needs to also get done. And mm. I will hold that in my mind and it mm -hmm. becomes uh, an internal distraction and it just keeps going. Like now I'm, I'm trying to write a speech, but what I'm actually doing is running through to-do lists and trying yeah. not to forget them. And yeah. the hilarious thing is that that exercise is futile. I will forget them because I haven't done anything to memorize them. <sighs> and I'm just, they're, they're just, they're distracting me. And yeah, uh, yeah th this is the biggest manifestation of resistance, I guess, for me right now is standing in the way of all of my creative, creative pursuits is just me being tired and distracted and giving into distraction a little too easily. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that, Jason. Um, in that same way, I can also in the way, in the same, same way that you sort of coalesce it into the idea of distraction for me, I have, I feel like it's always been a notion of judgment, judge external judgment. Uh, there, there's a situation a couple of days ago where uh, my girlfriend was in the living room, like doing like marking and I wanted to play saxophone. I wanted to practice and I've been like breaking in some new reads and that's kind of like an ego check for me. Cause um, when you have a, a, a read, the reads go up in strength mm -hmm. and um, you, when you go up a level in read strength, it's kind of like, at least personally, I've noticed like my skill at the actual saxophone goes down markedly. So it's like, <laughs> I'm so good. I'm so great. And then if you play a read enough, it just becomes like a wet, soggy, like paper, t toilet paper kind of, it just doesn't sound good. So I have, I have to move up to like get better. So like I'm working through that and like the, all, all the ego involved with that. But I was in my room and I was practicing and like looking at my embouchure and doing all this stuff. And I had this completely insane idea of like, I should not be practicing saxophone right now because I'm not paying attention to my girlfriend and she's going to judge me as a bad boyfriend, which right. is crazy because she literally told me like, go and practice. Like she does not want to interact with me right now. Cause she's busy. Like she was yeah. busy marking. I'm in another room. I'm giving her exactly what she needs. I'm giving her space. I'm giving her time. She doesn't want to interact, but like I keep practicing and I had to like, literally like push that down. Like, I had to talk to myself in the mirror, like, Alex, she doesn't, like, she doesn't want to pay attention to you right now. It's okay. And that's always been a through line of, like, it ties into, like, per the issues of perfectionism I've had and people-pleasing where I have to put out the best content, the, the thing that is infallible, creative thing, or else it's not worth doing because it's going to, I'm going to be judged for it. So well, that, Yeah. Yeah, like even the first couple iterations of us podcasting, we, we spent a lot of time listening to the audio like, hmm, this is, uh, you know, not professional quality. Never yeah. mind that we did it in a living room with like other people. Construction outside and yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and a, a lot of times I think about, but lately with us doing this more regularly, I've been thinking about a lot that if we had pushed through that, that fear of sounding bad, back yeah. then, then we would have gotten a lot of crappiness out of the way and be yeah. much better at this. That when I listen to an episode, uh, oh, okay, I'm going to say this out loud and anyone listening is going to be like, well, now I hear it. <laughs> oh boy. When I get speaking in, in this format, yes, I use the word so to, to <laughs> 
punctuate <laughs> sentences like crazy. Uh, it drives me nuts. And in our first couple episodes in particular, I, I was listening to it to prepare to upload the episode. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is something that I worked out in public speaking a long time ago. Why can't I do it here? Mm, well, I've mm. never done a one hour conversation like this. That's where it came from. Yeah, that long. It's just yeah. lack of practice. Yeah. And if we had done it back then, then this podcast would be so much better than it, yeah. it, than it is. And, I, and this is not to lament the, the quality no. of things. Yeah. But just imagine that if you push through and practice or when your girlfriend is busy, you just do the saxophone or, you know, when you're, when you're tired at night and the, the dishes need to be done, but you want to get that one last page written of the manuscript yeah. and it's in your head. Yeah. God, you get the practice out of the way so early because the past is gone. The things that I did happened. Yeah. Yeah. We can learn from them. But I, I think I, I used to get rankled at that notion. Like I used to not even want to look at that kind of rearview mirror perspective. But the more I think about it, Jason, because you've brought it up a couple times in previous episodes, I can see now how I can take that like, uh, if only. And it's almost like I could transmute that into the future of like, oh, but like, but what if? Like, it's like, if only we had yeah. started at this time and I'm feeling that pain, but then I can sort of like, that's like a leapfrog off. And it's like, cause we're, we're all in lockdown right now. Like this, you know, this is a t an uncertain time. We, some people have nothing but time. And like, I can't fathom, like I would just, I would just be cut to ribbons if we came out of this. And I, uh, sorry, if I came out of this personally and I was like, I did nothing. Like I did nothing. Like we didn't start a podcast. We didn't start anything like you know, obviously we got to work within our means and our limits. And I'm, this isn't me like chastising listeners to be like, you should like be doing this and doing that. The absolute opposite. Like that is, and it ties into what I wanted to talk about in, in a minute, but like lamenting the past is, is, is sort of like a, a blind alley, but I like the way you frame it, Jason. Cause you just like with, you just said, you know, imagine if I'm in a situation where I'm kind of at the end of my rope and like, yeah, dishes need to be done, like you said, but then I put in that one extra thing or like I put in that one other thing, how that's yeah. going to project. If you think about like uh, business analytics, uh -huh. for example, this is kind of a weird one maybe, but it's very common that on a dashboard of analytics, you would have a pie chart for something. Yes. Like how the company spends its time is mm -hmm. one. So you, you would look at your labor and say, we spend... 30% doing redos of quality. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you would look at that and obviously be upset because that's pure waste. Whenever you have to redo yeah. something is pure waste. Yep. Yeah. And as a company, you would say, okay, we need to address the problems that are causing redos. And uh, this was a really popular in the Toyota method, which became the gold standard for um, manufacturing in the world. Uh, okay. And and was adapted into the current gold standard of software development. Most people don't oh. know that, uh, but agile development and all of the various flavors of, of agile yes. can trace back to Toyota. Tell me about, I'm, right? I'm legitimately but, curious. Oh, uh, okay. You, guess, give me the 20,000 foot view. <laughs> yeah. Post-World War II, Japan's economy is a giant mess. Okay. And America is coming back up, ramping up production, right back into assembly line stuff, okay. producing like crazy, making a lot of money, da 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 da. Uh -huh. And this doctor of business or something, I, I don't remember what his, 
he was like an important guy, okay. goes to Japan to help them work on their economy. Mm-hmm. And he's become disillusioned with this idea of, um, of rote, like... Taylorism. He, he basically felt that the assembly line for all of the efficiencies that it gained in, in the past has started to create inefficiencies and that everyone's ignoring it because they're making money. I see. Okay. Okay. Right? Yeah. So he helped them develop the Toyota system and then Toyota in particular, like really, 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 they had a, a guy who I think his last name was Toyota, but not Toyota. It was uh-huh. Toyota. Fair enough. Um, anyway, he was the president of the company and he like really ran with this new way of doing business. Yeah. A uh, simple example would be if you look at when you make a car, you like machine some metal in one section and then you paint the metal in another section. Okay. And then you assemble the pieces in another section of the, the warehouse. And everyone's doing individual things. Like you're screwing in right. the one bolt, the classic sure. image. Yeah. But the American system was like, okay, the machining department, we need to get 20% improvement there. And then the painting department should get 10% improvement and, and so on and so on. Uh-huh. And Toyota looked at it and went, the, the machinists spend 30 minutes. And then there's four hours of sitting around doing nothing for the machine, for the, the piece of metal. And yeah. then it goes into the painting department and that takes uh... an hour. But then it just sits around and waits for four days before the assemblers are ready. So they took uh... everything and they made it into one process and they started looking at the gaps in between pieces of labor yeah. as indicators of the health of overall. They yeah. basically invented just for just in time production at that, right. that moment. No bottleneck. And, yeah. And through that's like 1950s and 60s, right? Okay. In 2008, Toyota was one of the only car manufacturers in the world that didn't lose money. Whoa. Because of this like related intimately with that system of lack of yeah. waste, lack of and redoing. Completely the word Kaizen is, is known oh. here in North America because that was their culture of continuous improvement all the time. Yeah. Kaizen means uh, like continuous incremental improvement. Yeah. And so they stopped looking at doing projects where you would, you would gain an increase of 20%. And mm-hmm. instead they focused on a culture of improvement where you're just improving every day by yeah. tiny, tiny amounts. Yeah. There was no one in the company who couldn't make a suggestion and the president used to demand of his executives that they spent time on the front lines and so he famously or maybe infamously had a a quality manager and he asked the quality manager a question and he didn't know the answer it was like a pretty basic question about how their production process worked yeah so he went down to the assembly floor drew a chalk circle that was like a meter across like a small Uh circle put the the quality manager in the circle and said, your job for today is to sit in the circle. Oh, savage. For an entire day, how (laughs) things were going. And by the end of the day, the guy was like, I don't think that what I was talking about is even that important because, you know, there's, it was like this myopic little piece of the task and there's all this other flow stuff. And yeah, I I could talk about this all day. There's a book called Lean Thinking. Okay. Which chronicles the like coming up of, of lean, but um, all the business practices from there, software development has a system called agile mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. agile was the um, 
knowledge worker version of the Toyota production system. I see, I see. And it was, I think it was in the 90s that Agile started coming up. But in, in any case, whenever it was, hmm. it borrowed from lean manufacturing and then developed its own sort of system for knowledge work. Interesting. And this, and this is this, all this, and I appreciate you sort of dilating on that. Cause I've only been receptive to the idea of like agile business management from like the trickle down zeitgeist of like, you need to work agile and like some, some talks I've been to, but this, all, all this to say that, and, and this, this ties in with a metaphor I wanted to use for you, Jason is cause we were, we were, t we're talking right now about like waste and redoing effort and like the pie chart of your life, the pie chart of your hours. And one, I loved what you said about the in-between time. I think that's very relevant for us, and it's for our listeners as well on, in this time of COVID-19. I don't know. One of the Beatles said, like, life happens when you're waiting for other things or something like that. It's like, I, I'm so glad that I – I'm so glad I've learned from people like you and other people to, like, structure my life in such a way where I can make my personal creative growth a game that I can win. And as an example, like I have my phone on me at all times. I was working through Arabic flashcards for years, paper ones, right? I would cut index cards in half. I would draw the pictures myself and like color them and then yep. like try to get the spelling right. And it was, it was madness because I would have this big box of cards, but now I could be lying on my couch, you know, whatever my laundry is going to be done in four minutes. I'm chilling on my couch. What could I do? I could watch a YouTube video or I could like, you know, and though, and that's fine too, both are fine and I could also whip out my phone and do like 10 cards and just boom 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 a couple words and I, I, it's so it's so vital for us both to like understand that idea of ready fire aim and like you don't have to be perfect that's a James Altucher thing it's like ready fire aim just get it out there get it done and, and he also had this really great metaphor of the way that cranes are built. So if you want to build a big building in, in engineering terms, I suppose this is sort of like a fallacy or like a, a like a pipe dream. Everybody wants the sky hook, the hook that you can just hook into the sky and it will float invisibly in the sky. And from that apex ideal point, you can build the entire building up. The sky hook doesn't exist and it doesn't exist in life either. And how we actually build buildings is you build buildings by building cranes. How do you build big cranes? With smaller cranes. You start with a tiny crane, and that tiny crane builds a bigger crane, which looks like the smaller crane, and then that crane builds a bigger one, and so on and so forth, until you get a crane big enough to build the thing that you want. And I think that, like, as I say this, I, there's so many, so many times, Jason, that I ignore my own rule of, like, I, I want that sky hook, man. I want the hook that yeah. I can just build the perfect novel or the perfect podcast or the perfect what the perfect teaching practice. But it man, just doesn't like, happen that way. The biggest problem. Well, what was a big problem for me for many? And I see mm -hmm. this as a problem for many people yeah. is uh the the idea that i can only do the optimal thing and yeah trying to optimize your life leads to uh uh doing nothing it leads to <laughs> suboptimal result paralysis so by analysis with working out i was like okay i have to do a strength program that's optimal yep. and a sprinting program 
because I, I, I want to be able to run and whatever. Yeah. And my strength program will have to be the, the Pavel, what's his name? Kettlebell uh, guy. Super duper strength one that's optimized for like being the strongest person in the world. And the same for my sprint thing. And that means that I have to dedicate seven days a week to pre-planned diet, pre-planned workouts. And those workouts have to happen at the exactly right time. But hey, yeah. guess what? I had two jobs. So <laughs> you can't just stop working. Yeah. And then I just wouldn't do anything. I, I would be like, okay, well, once I get the next promotion, I don't need the second job. This is, I was a lot younger then. And yeah. once I don't need the second job, I'll have all this time in the world and I can do this kind of thing. But yeah. what would have been better is to just work out the two days a week that I could work out and learn how to exercise, which yeah. I didn't do. And then later I had to learn how to exercise. And where I'm going with this is the suboptimal strategy for working out is to just make sure that you work out every day, yeah. even if it's not perfect. Yep. And that strategy leads to being generally stronger, generally thinner, and generally happier because yeah. you don't have this massive expectation that I'll be the strongest guy in the room. Yeah. 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 I, I agree with everything that you're saying, Jason. It's, it's, and I mean, like, I'm sorry that I'm laughing while you're saying that because obviously at the time it seems to you and me and everybody that it's like totally rational. Like I'm going to like originally, Jason, I wanted to learn Arabic, Mandarin Chinese, and learn to sight read music at the same time. And at the time, I thought it was completely rational and reasonable. It's like, yeah, I will dedicate an hour of day to this, an hour of day to that. And like from 9 to 10 p.m., it'll be Mandarin. And then I'll wake up and like from 5 to 6 a.m., it'll be Arabic. And now I'm laughing at myself because, but, but when I'm in that bubble of perfect or nothing, like we talked about, like that binary, right? Yeah. We must have, I must have it perfect or there, or I'm not doing a good enough job. That's another form of resistance. It's it's resistance sure. to just doing it, getting messy, getting dirty. And it ties into what I wanted to, another thing that I wanted to posit to the room is that what has overcoming creative resistance allowed you to discover in yourself? What has using the tools, and we'll talk about the tools in a minute. What has the times when you have succeeded, the times when it, when it resistance hasn't won over you, what has that allowed you to see in yourself, to, to value in yourself, or discover in yourself? I think that for me, um, okay, so whenever you overcome, the process of overcoming resistance, it, to me, means actually creating something. Yeah. And whatever it is, um, for, well, let's use my public speaking, right? Sure. By writing, by writing and delivering speeches over and over and over and overcoming resistance over and over and over, uh, each single speech unlocked a new level of confidence in me that was not apparent to me in the moment always, but yeah. simple things like I got a new job. That new job came with a huge raise. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a scary thing or was a scary thing for me that one day I walked in, I went, I was a junior at my old company. Right. And this new company has a real expectation of me. Yes. To, to be sort of the, not a senior level person, but certainly a voice of authority on, on a certain topic. Mm -hmm. And there was a day where I had to walk into a meeting and run it, but I had five minutes of preparation that oh. they didn't tell me there was a meeting. It was just sort of like, whoops, there's an emergency. You, you're going to run point on this. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, it was halfway through the meeting when I realized like, oh, I'm not actually that nervous and I am really handling this well. Yeah. It was because all of my practice public speaking led me to a point where I could run a meeting for executives who were, you know, my boss and my boss's boss. Yeah, yeah. And I could run that meeting because the the idea of speaking publicly to that audience was no longer intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. What I unlocked then specifically was a huge amount of confidence in myself. I, I later I did a wedding speech, which mm-hmm. a lot of people find really nerve wracking. And it was so much fun that I actually regret that it's the kind of speech you can only do once. That, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It's an experience that I will rarely ever have again. I got to stand up to an audience of like 150 people, most yeah. of whom I don't know, and just make them laugh, make them go, oh, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> oh, man, I love that so it much. It was wonderful. <sighs> and, and anyway, the point here being that one is maybe a very tangible confidence in terms of interpersonal skill yeah. speaking. But if, especially in a pursuit that's important to you, uh, if you want to be an artist, for example, the act of overcoming resistance and painting over and over and over will lead to a new confidence in yourself because you get to see your results change over time and you get to see the the ideas in your head become reality. And yeah. self-efficacy as an ideal is a faith in yourself to actually follow through and do things. Yeah. When yeah. you follow through and do things, you prove to yourself that you can do, do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that, uh, I forget who said, but it's that, it's that contract of, of you, you, you build confidence only by fulfilling promises to yourself by making contracts to yourself. I've always discovered most of my creative resistance has always been in, in education, in my job. Um, it's something that was like, again, sort of through family obligation, I found myself, you know, uh, uh, jumping into this profession, uh, you know, and I come from a family of teachers on both sides of my family. And it's, you know, I also went to film school. There's a lot of things I wanted to do um, uh, it, it sort of instead, quote unquote. But I found myself in a situation where I was leveraging skills that I had. I, I happened to have some like natural talent in front of people and, and like connecting to young people. But the, the like, and like I said a few episodes ago, the, the idea of uh, um, being, being uh, uh, an imposter to myself. And what I realized is by getting out there, by getting into the classroom and by making content and delivering it over and over and over again, I thought it would drain me. And it did from a physiological sense. Like I would take, I would, I would be, you know, tired after a long day, but the days where I really took a risk and, and I didn't fall back to rote, like, okay, we're just going to do this assignment or this worksheet or this such and such. It's like, oh no, you know what? Like a kid, some, a kid said something really cool yesterday and I want to like do that. Like a perfect example was we, I was talking about online bullying and you know, the kids at that time I was teaching in grade four, they, they knew I was into hip hop. They knew I liked, you know, like rapping and stuff. Yeah. And this yeah. kid was like, you know, Mr. Adams, you should like make a rap. And I'm like, no, no, that's ridiculous. I would, ne- and I, I, and I felt in myself, like if I had let that go, that would have been the drain, Jason. Like that would have taken away all my energy. And what I realized is, and I'm like, this isn't like a big flex of like, oh, and I'm like this perfect teacher and da 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 da. Like, away, man. okay, well, I, I made this hip hop song, <laughs> and the kids ate it up, and it was great. 
and I took a huge risk and it paid off. Some risks don't, but the point I wanted to make was what, uh, what overcoming creative resistance, uh, what I discovered in myself was that I was always okay. It wasn't this additive thing where I'm adding things onto my personality. It, it's as right. if it's like revealing my capabilities in myself. So it's not sort of like I've done this and therefore I'm fine. Being on the other side of that wall, Jason, it's almost like I was able to look back and say like, oh, that's me. Like I am like, that's just my personality. I'm the kind of person who can do this. And that sort of confidence, it's almost as if not to get too esoteric. It's almost as if I'm like, I'm introduced to myself. I'm introduced to like the best version of myself. So that was, that's the thing that really, really resonated with me is, is the more I, I, I push up against my own character at its outward edge, the more of myself I am able to discover and sort of acquaint with. Yeah. I I think you don't internalize things as this is a thing that I've done. Yeah. You start to internalize things as this is a thing that I can do. And the fact that I've done it is evidence of that. Yeah. So that becomes a really important part of the mentality. And I think also, if you look at the flip side of your story, yes, if you didn't write the rap, then in your mind, you risk becoming the teacher who could have been funny and love and whatever. (sighs) Yeah. You know, like I could have been the cool teacher. I had the chance. That is, yeah. Like, I don't know what that, that, that uh, poem, like the hollow men, I think, uh, who, who wrote that? George Bernard Shaw? I don't know. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, Walt Whitman. Anyway, that whole poem is all about like people who like the disease of I could have. Like to me, and this is sort of a side tangent, but to me, like that's such a psychic toxin because if you deny your own greatness, you become like an energy vampire. It's like, I could have, but I didn't. Therefore, anyone who did, I hate on some subconscious level. Like anybody who attained to their own manifestation of their best self, I am reacting to that with pain because I recognize that I didn't get there myself. And that is such a loathsome path. I, I you know, never want to never wanna do that, man. Yeah, I, I, everything I've ever been good at, when you talk about it, someone will inevitably say like, oh, but I'd be good at that too if I spent all this time on it. Yeah. Yup. Yeah. <laughs> who, who was it? That some people went up to Arnold Schwarzenegger and they're like, we would never want to look like you. And he was like, don't worry, you won't. Like, and it sounds like a, it sounds like a flex, right? It sounds like ego, but there's this, there's this, there's this distinction between someone like winners win, right? Someone who is truly like look themselves in the eye and their own inequities and their insecurities and like doubts and have, and is in the process. I'm not going to say like one over them. Cause it's like, to me, it's like an endless battle and it's an endless journey. I say, but the people who have really overcome themselves, like Dwayne Johnson, for some reason is coming to my mind. Like Dwayne Johnson, he had to like humble himself when he was a voice actor in Moana. Like he, he had crushed the wrestling game, the acting game, body, he, yeah. and then he p- yeah. put on like 60 pounds of muscle. He became a tank. And then, and then he gets into voice acting and all of that disappears. And he had to completely humble himself and be like, well, I don't know anything. Like a person like that to me, 
is someone who's like a true winner without being e an egoist, an egoist about it. Cause he recognizes that you have to humble yourself and you have to really look yourself in the eye and it has nothing to do with the outside world. And like when you talk about paintball or stuff like that, I don't see that as a flex because I know, you know, that you have had to like discover things in yourself to get that good at paintball. And like, you had to like really just break yourself down in a, in essence in order to get that. And the people who don't do that, which is my point, the people who don't do that, like you can tell. And that's sad because like, they've got that, like I could have, but I don't, uh, don't do that. Don't be that. <laughs> yeah. I just had a home smoking weed, but I would have been good if I did. Oh, I mean, I, I probably that's yeah, that could have been me. That's why I've like my it's so well, it was you. It, it was it you was. Out of time. No, it was. I, it was. It totally was. I don't think I, I mean, we'd be entirely dishonest in in the whole yeah. thing if we said that your narrative is set. Right. Like that's that's our no. whole shtick of this, this yeah, podcast exactly. is you can change that narrative. But I, I think that the idea of narrative is is sort of telling the story right it's not the yeah. events that happen no it's how it you ain't tell it. exactly and it's a really important thing to understand that we're kind of making fun of people here you and i but yeah yeah when we do that it's coming from a place of understanding because we've been that person too and the the reality is when you look back we, we started this whole tangent with the pie chart when yes. you look at yes. the pie chart and you say you know i spent 60 percent of my time smoking weed and and sitting around doing nothing or yeah. in university there was a period where my university was on strike and i was yeah. just stuck in residence with nothing to do <sighs> yeah and me and my roommates probably spent six hours a day watching television shows yep yeah like same, it was bad same diff and yeah so there was a period in my life where i was that guy like well mm. yeah if i was working out i'd be ripped well, I had six hours a day that I was just watching television and freaking yeah. two hours a day drinking. So yeah. obviously you had the time yeah. and I had to make that change. I had to recognize the narrative as that was the moment in my life before my Rocky montage of punching uh, cows in a yeah. freezer. Yeah. But I had to yeah. start punching the cows in the freezer. Yeah. FYI, they, they not he, Rocky wasn't punching cows. It was meat. So don't, don't be mad about Rocky, our listeners. The cows were well, dead already. Like, out parts okay well i mean i just i just had my mind like like rocky balboa like knocking out some bovines but that wasn't what was well that? yeah i mean that's in rocky nine yeah when he he goes to the farm he fights he fights jason Voorhees he's on like, the moon adrian and then he punches the cow total sidebar but did you ever see jason x jason 10 no. So J Jason in space, you need to watch that movie because it's oh. Jason in space and like nano machines recreate Jason Voorhees into like Giga Robo Jason. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Oh my god, <laughs> that sounds so appealing. It's Is that on Netflix, bro? It, uh, so it's so good because it's it takes place in like the far off future of like 2012, where there's like a bunch of university kids in a space colony going by Mars, and they're like, "What's this ancient artifact?" And they blow the dust off of it, and it's like, "What are these discs?" Oh, uh, the professor says they're called DVDs. DVDs? How stupid! Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's 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 a tour. It's a tour de force. But <laughs> anyway, I'm stunned. I know I you're love just that concept. 
so good i hope it's on netflix and i can netflix party it <laughs> jason in the first half of the movie movie jason's like a normal jason and then somebody like kicks him into like this vat of nano machines and he becomes like the, the yeah. mask becomes like a cybernetic metal mask and he gets all these powers oh my god did you, did you ever see the rise of leslie vernon i don't even know who that is it uh i don't remember if that's what it's called okay. it was a a a mockumentary of Ooh. a woman interviewing a, a thriller murderer guy okay who he's basically like the murderer from a thriller like uh like the jason movies or friday the 13th or yeah though along that vein right yeah michael and myers so it's it's sort of like a dark comedy where Ooh. he's like working out all the time and she's interviewing about it and he's like yeah you know when I go to kill somebody, I have to walk down the street, but they're sprinting and I have to keep up with them, but still look like I'm walking. And <laughs> you would not imagine the fitness that it takes for me to just stalk them all night long. And, and he goes through this whole thing. And then oh the last God. 15 minutes of the movie, he, he tries to murder her. And it, so it, it spends part of it breaking down the thriller genre and then part of it being the thriller. Like Very that. fun movie. I, like and I suggest checking it out. If you happen to be watching Jason X on repeat and just sitting in, uh, you know, sitting on your duff all day or watching the rise of Leslie Vernon and thinking to yourself, Jason and Alex are uh, telling me that like my life, I'm wasting all this time. Like, you know, I've had conversations with people about wasted time and it can be very pernicious as a narrative, but yeah. I have to recognize in myself, like I wasted so much time years of time and if i can right. you know like i can and i'm glad like you've recognized it in me but i can impart to you and whoever's listening like it's like you said it's not the events the events are just the fabric it's just raw cloth it's the molding of the personal narrative which which i can control i can control that i can control how i look at that and i like that how you use that rocky narrative to circle back like yeah there's always that movie where the dude is like you know, 40 pounds overweight with like the beer belly and he's watching like his old like football movies or whatever. The Incredibles is a great movie like that where he's like, oh, I'm yeah. like working out and, I, and he's like lifting the trains and, and and that's that's the important thing of, of, of recognizing that. And that's a tool, Jason. It's a tool to recognize the resistance of the narrative of wasted time stopping us from spending time in the future effectively. And it leads me to my final question for us is are there any other tools or procedures that you've seen in yourself or other people to overcome creative resistance any other things that maybe because i know stephen pressfield talks a lot about it we've both read the war of art if you're listening right now check it out it's a nice book i think we've mentioned it once before but for you personally are there any tools that you use personally to help you overcome creative resistance uh, yeah. So lately I said, distraction was a big thing for me. Yes. Um, if what I'm doing does not require the internet, uh -huh. I will disconnect from the internet. Beautiful. Like I will literally turn Wi-Fi off on my computer. My phone goes across the room. Or if I don't need my phone, like I've turned it off to do that. Ooh, scary. <laughs> well, because if it's off, I can't just hit a button to get Instagram. That's so smart actually. Yeah. Yeah, even when it's across the room, I can stand up, click the button on the side of my phone. Uh, I have a pixel, so like I literally just 
put my finger on the thing yeah. and then my phone wakes up and I'm on Instagram. Like oh, it's that easy. Yeah. 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 Right. But if I have to start my phone up, yeah, it only takes 15 seconds, but that is 15 seconds that I can catch myself and walk away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the thing. Like I'll, I'll literally create a space where to the extent that I can, there are no distractions entering, especially frivolous ones. Yeah. If my wife needs my time or if the baby's crying, uh, I'll accept that. But yeah. I don't have to accept random Facebook messages yeah. or, you know, a friend saying, how you doing? That's an important thing. I, I want to follow yeah, up with my totally. friends. But, you know, some mornings I also just want to get some work done. And right now it's very difficult because my whole life has no uh, sense of urgency and I have to create yeah. that for myself I yeah. do it by disconnecting. Yeah. That that's a big tool for me. And the second one is a stopwatch. Ooh, I'm glad you brought that up. All right. Tell me how you yeah. use the stopwatch. Well, for one thing, set yourself a minimum time that yeah. for the next 15 minutes, it can be a small minimum. I am going to write workout, um, go for walk, like yeah. whatever is the important Yep. active creation for you right yeah for me today it'll be speech writing uh later like i kind of want to make a website on wordpress that'll take some time mm -hmm. there, there's just like little projects and um there's a few courses that i'm taking i want to kind of apply them yeah when i'm working on those things i i want to set myself both a, a sometimes a time limit but often a time minimum mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. I'm going to give it 15 minutes. If I can't get into it after 15 minutes, I'm okay to take a break. Fine. Yeah, whatever. Absolutely. Um, you know, often I set longer than 15 minutes, but I think it, I often don't need longer than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. If I get, if I get to 15, I know whether or not I can get into my activity. And yeah. if I can't get into my activity, then I need to find out why and then just deal with that. So uh, as an example, if I really have to go to the bathroom after 15 minutes, I'll go to the bathroom, get a glass of water, get a snack, and then come back to work. Yeah. And then set yeah. myself a 15 minute timer again. When I'm doing, when I'm re this is sort of, this is not directly related, but because you brought up the idea of a stopwatch, I will do a 20 minute rotating stopwatch uh, cycle on my watch. So it'll beep, but the timer will still be going down. And I can just press a button to stop it beeping uh, to get up every 20 minutes if I'm reading. If I'm trying to do like a long read through for like work or whatever, a long boring document. So I know if I'm reading, it's like, oh, this is so boring and I don't want to read this anymore. I can look at my watch and say, oh, I only have seven more minutes to go or I only have 11 more minutes to read. Then I can get up and stretch my legs. But I've actually um, taken it a bit more extreme than you with that sort of micro scheduling. I will go as low. I have gone as low as 45 seconds in situations oh, for anything, for any creative endeavor. It, the times where I've been truly scared about stuff. Okay. And like, okay, like for instance, like I, I've had to like deal with, uh, uh, like for instance, like getting judged by a superior, like through like a, uh, like I, I have a thing as teachers called a TPA, teacher performance appraisal. Like th the lessons that I had to create were like, I was under tremendous stress and it's like, I didn't want to look at it. I didn't even want to like acknowledge it. So times where I've had to like rub up against that internal, like, ugh, don't want to do it. I've literally been like, okay, Alex, for 45 seconds, I'm going to open this material and I'm going to open my eyeballs and look at the page. And that's all you have to do. 
And it was that sort of like extreme, like that ludicrously cartoon level of baby step that kind right. of, it's like we've talked about with the stress inoculation, right? It's like, okay, literally the book is open. I'm looking at it and I'm not dying and it's fine. And here I am. I'm writing one thing down. Okay. All right. Good. Great. Go eat an, an egg or whatever. Go to the water. An egg. Like go, go eat something. Go. Oh, go boil an egg. Go boil. Suck all the enjoyment out of food forever. That's right. Uh, Just eat 12 have eggs. A different approach. I do different approach to the same problem. Mm-hmm. I, I am a very methodical person, mm. so I will take things and I have to do them in order and I have to go from beginning to end and it yep. can be disruptive to me to not get through it. Yes. Um, but I'm also a very anxious person yes. and anxious people will often cycle that whole list over and over and over and over. Oh, to pr- like internally, like to prepare. Yeah. I mm-hmm. Now, my tool then for something in your example, the the lesson plan that I'm really feeling an aversion to yep. is I will sit down and write out all of the things that I want to do to get that lesson plan done. Yes. Really, really granular level something. So right. uh, what do I have to do? I have to organize the paperwork. I have to decide the sections. I have to plan the, the timing. I have to research um, curriculum one research curriculum two research this funny topic three mm-hmm. write one joke to open the class with yep. um and and like literally go through every single step of the process yeah this is a planning exercise but i have to do it on paper not in my head it has to be yes out of my head yes. and i will go through it i will order them if i have to uh, i will look at it and say am i really is that all of the stuff and it gives me an artifact on my desk that I can look at and say, okay, if I think of another thing that I have to do, I simply add it to the list, but I don't have to concentrate on it. Yeah. What I am going to concentrate on is step one. And Excellent. I can box in step one. I can open my notebook, word processor, I don't know, whatever yep. the next tool is. And I can go to work on my list item by item. And it takes so much pressure off because the pressure for me is coming from seeing every tree in the forest. Yeah. But I don't have to see every tree in the forest. I just have to cut the first one down. There is a real, I think first off, what you said, Jason, is extremely universal. And I share that too. I absolutely love to have a list, uh, especially like you said, like a stressful thing to break it down, bite-sized chunks and Specifically, I love what you mentioned, having a, a, a methodology for shunting anxious pop-ups of like, oh, but what about this? But what about that? And, and having a collection system for collecting yep. that. There is a, uh, um, there's a, 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 a symptom, there's an, a brain effect called the Zygarnik effect, which is the idea of open loops. And there's a brain corollary too. Like, I don't know what what the specifics of it, but your brain has like a, a low level alarm system of like something undone. And then there's another area of the brain that sort of lights up and shuts that initial part down to say, oh, 
we're good. It's kind of like two people and one is like, but what about this? But what about this? And you can ignore that guy. It's not like having like a panic attack or any of these extreme, um, you know, mental effects. But right. to have that system of, of letting that other element of your brain be like, no, I put it here. Here it is. I've written it down and I'm going to do it at this point in time. And then that stops the Zygarnik effect and you can sort of, you know, engage in happier work. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you are itching to say about this topic of creativity and creative blocks? We talked about ways that it could uh, win, ways that it has won in our lives. Uh, we've talked about how, uh, what it is, what a creative endeavor is or could not be some of the tools that we could use and some of the reasons why uh, we want to engage in this at all about discovering ourselves and, 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 you know, uh, um, building our self-confidence. Is there anything you personally are just itching to say or feel like something has been remained unsaid? Well, I guess my last tip for overcoming uh, creative resistance is to create for yourself a constraint mm. and approach creativity as something that I'm going to do in, uh, okay. I lost how to say that sentence, but create a constraint. <laughs> I lost my metaphor. It's and, all good. Uh, you can get around blocks basically by narrowing the task that you have to do. Um, yeah. when it comes to practice, for example, when I was practicing paintball, I got really, really good at a few key skills, but I did it by cutting the entire field down to like, a little thing and no one wanted to practice it. So snap shooting is one of my examples. Yeah. I would put a target behind a piece of cover and I would stand first 10 feet and then 15 feet and, and like longer and longer distances. Uh -huh. But I would stand behind a piece of cover and pop out and shoot really yeah. fast yeah, and then yeah. pop back. And that's, that's a thing called snap shooting. And I would then pop out and check, did I hit the target? No. Okay. And, and you get actually pretty good at predicting whether you're going to hit the target. Yeah. And, but I just practiced that no people on the field, just me shooting a target yep. over and over and over and over and over. And then I would play a game with people who were like weekend warriors, not the competitive guys. Yeah. And I would play that. I could only take one shot from behind any given piece of cover. Ooh, so that I was a constraint shot, you put on yourself. Like you, yeah. you were giving yourself the constraint of, I can take one shot. So make it count. Well, not make it count. Like I maybe, but I've got one shot before I have to leave. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So d like, oh, there's my shot. Okay. Now what? And I yeah. ended up getting really, really good at um, particular situations that involve a lot of movement. And one of them was one-on-one -on -one situations, which are like high pressure, but kind of really fun in the gladiator sense, like yeah. when you get down to a one, everybody is looking at you kind of moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I yeah. remember we were in a championship situation where it was a double elimination tournament. If we Ooh. lost the second game, we lost our first. If we lost Whoa. the second game, we were out. Yeah. And we were tied. And I got down to this one on one with a guy. And I just remember feeling such a release of stress because I was like, oh, this dude just entered my world. Oh, because of the practice. Because I had been practicing ah. this situation, like this moving yeah. around situation. And so one of the best things that you can do in a one-on-one -on -one is you shoot at the guy and he takes cover and you immediately leave your piece of cover. 
So when he comes back out, he's expecting you to be somewhere and you're not there. Ah, yeah. Ooh, mind games. Yes. Yeah. And the result was like, he was always a little bit off balance because every time he came out to shoot me, I, sh I would shoot him from a new place. Ooh. And then he would shoot that place and I was back in the first one. And he was always like a little bit confused. And people who were watching us from the sidelines afterwards told me it, it looked like I didn't realize that I was in a high pressure situation, that I was just kind of calm and and flowing with the moment and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it looked like the other guy was losing his mind, that he was freaking out. And I clearly had him panicked. Awesome. Oh but my it, God. That's sort of an aside. My, my yeah. main point here is the constraint is what allowed me to do that. If you're trying to write, for example, you know, write your manuscript, yeah. imagine what it would be like to write it, write it with somebody else's prompt in mind. And uh, mm. there's a, a subreddit where people just post writing prompts. I know that subreddit. Oh, that's, yeah, I like yeah. that one. It's called writing prompts, but yeah. grab someone's prompt. Like, don't judge it, just take it yeah. and learn yeah. how to write within that constraint. And if you go through the exercise a bunch of times, what you will start to find is that um, by narrowing what you're focused on, it's a lot easier to just get words out of your, your head. Fantastic. I'm going to also say uh, to leave our listeners with and to leave you with is don't make yourself wrong by feeling the resistance to creative pursuits. You're going to feel resistance. I'm going to feel resistance. Uh, Henry Fonda was throwing up backstage as a 75 year old man. It was just part of the part for the course. And you've got to be ready and prepared to engage, but not isolate yourself and think that you are the exception to the rule. And this has been Dickensian epilogues. And remember, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending.